everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 25, also known as Episode 50 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show where we go back through the annals of human history and give you uh, stories of absolute brilliant stupidity so that you can learn lessons from them and never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We like to repeat mistakes. So much so that we've made 50 whole episodes about the utter stupidity. Toasterzoid is already here. Uh, sup, I feel like shit. Hey, Toasty, sorry about that. Hope you feel better. We'll try and perk you up a little bit. Yeah. Got that cold. Uh, it's joining gone. Me is... Yeah. It's going. <laughs> my wife's got it as well. Uh, joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how have you been the last 24 hours since we recorded our last episode? Yeah, this is back-to-back. It's got me... Got me so yeah. excited. Um, I know. We're just just laying around, around all now, day. man. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those things where um, I was concerned that I wouldn't have enough material, but then like, I was out walking with my wife earlier after rescuing her car from like a really stupid mistake, and I was like, oh, greatest practical joke of the 19th century. Perfect, because I'd like watched a video on it weeks ago, and it's oh, God, it's amazing. I can't wait to tell you about it. Um, I'm excited. I am too. Um, this has been a hell of a road getting here to 50 episodes because I can remember um, when we started, we launched on April Fool's Day 2021. So this is a while ago now, you know, full year and a half ago, more than that. And, um, you know, since then, we've done really well. We've covered loads and loads of idiots. We've had really nice interaction with some fans. We've, you know, uh, we've produced nearly 100 hours of content at this point, which is just crazy. So much talking. I know. <laughs> Who could imagine listening to us for that amount of time? If you ever want to do like a back to back and like maybe pet, uh, put us up against the Simpsons or something, I think they'd probably win because they got like 500 episodes or whatever. But still, like, you know, 100 hours of, of content is is kind of amazing because initially our first few episodes, we're only talking for like, 45 minutes 50 minutes and now like we're clocking in at close to two hours every time and that's when we're like oh i got a short one today <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're like oh i won't be talking too long it's only eight pages this one but yeah we end up talking much longer but no i've i've genuinely really enjoyed uh doing this podcast and like to do 50 episodes with you um it's just been an absolute pleasure my man i'm really pleased that we created this together so thank you so much well, thank you. I'm I'm pleased as well. Like I'm just yeah. happy to be here and and protect, uh, I mean, learning things. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> been it's been really informative. Like the stuff that we've covered and the conversations we've had with people about some of the episodes. Um, we've you know we've got a nice little community going. I really hope that we can grow. I, I ultimately I think both of us would like to be able to earn like a really nice amount of money from this as some sort of job. I think ultimately uh, we're we're a ways off yet, but you know we're making progress. Mm -hmm. And our most recent episode's doing really nicely. So if you want to go and listen to that, please do. And also the one we recorded yesterday, I have high hopes for. We've even created some incredibly fancy thumbnails oh. for for that one. So yeah, you can already see it on uh, YouTube. So I'm just happy um, that you do that stuff because uh, I am I not actually good with it. <laughs> I quite like doing the thumbnails. It's so much easier than it used to be. Like when I did my first degree in university back in 1999 last millennia um i had to learn to use the very first iterations of like um photoshop and 
uh, Dreamweaver and stuff like that to create websites. And, you know, I had to learn to use Flash, the very first version of that, more or less. And we had to learn HTML. And, like, designing anything it, using that stuff back then was so much harder than it is now. You can go onto web applications and knock up a thumbnail. And, like, I, I do it in, like, 15 minutes. And then I do, like, three versions of different sizes. But back then, it would take you hours to do that shit because there was nothing it, you had to do it all originally now you can like you've got assets that you can kind of alter and reuse and stuff from your own knowledge and the fonts is so much better it's just so much more intuitive so actually being a graphic designer now is so much easier than it was back in the early days of digital my god thank goodness for technologies yes god bless you steve jobs you crazy bastard Lev, I assure you, it's been quite hard. There's innuendo going on here. It's it's still quite hard. Um, take it from someone who's learning to use Blender. I don't know about Blender. What's Blender? <laughs> what? I, I thought he said a Blender for a second there, yeah, and I'm like, I don't get it. Yeah, just oh. put your hand in there, and uh, you're, you're off to the races. Uh, yeah, I guess like, red colors. Yes, uh, I think like graphic design's always been quite hard, but certainly easier than like learning html code when you've never coded in your life before so yeah anyway uh getting sidetracked now we're on 50 episodes and derek uh we've both got reasonably short ones today as i understand it but can you tell me who your idiot for this 50th episode is please okay well we've covered scientists and politicians and cult leaders and athletes mm -hmm. and today i want to i want to get to an inventor Wow, and the okay. reason that I want to get to him is because you've definitely used one of his most famous inventions, but you probably don't even know who he is. Okay. His name was Walter Hunt, and he was born July 29th, 1796 in Martinsburg, New York. Okay. so He was yeah. first born child of 13 children. <sighs> Holy shit. Yeah, just popping them out like Pez, ah, man. Um, he, he received his childhood education as most people that had access to education back in uh, 1796 in a one-room schoolhouse. Oh, yeah. And then straight from there in his biography, it goes to him earning a master's degree in masonry, which I didn't know was... A, I didn't know you could get a degree in masonry. Yeah, well, I guess like stonemasons, freemasons, it was still a very important job at that time. So, yeah, that's really interesting that you would have to study that, so... And it doesn't say what if there was a bachelor's, I guess. Yeah, it's, it would make it would make sense. Bachelor of, or maybe he's just a master mason. Maybe at, down at the lodge. At, yeah, maybe at, it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> sacrificing things and all of that. Yeah, that's not get into masonic rituals now. But yeah, I guess like it would have been combined with, um, kind of the like, engineering the apprenticeship. Type stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, like that yeah, okay. sort of thing, an apprenticeship and engineering, because obviously things were very practical back then, so he would have learned on the job as well. But that's really interesting. So he's obviously come from a decent background if he's learning that at a young age. Yes, and then he gets uh, he, he goes from masonry to starting off his inventing career, and it happened when he, he went up to New York City in 1826, and while he was up there, he witnessed a horse-drawn carriage run over uh, a little kid that wasn't paying attention when the carriage got out of control and it killed him. And he thought, you know what? What if there's a bell on that? 
<laughs> yeah, it makes sense. <clears throat> child, all that so courage. His first in invention is a, a metal bell that's operated with a hammer that's controlled by a, a driver's foot, so he doesn't have to take his, his hands off the reins and lose any control. And that way, you can alert any unsuspecting children before running them over and killing them. And I, that's yeah, that's a, a really good invention. The first like kind of car horn type thing, essentially. Yeah. I mean the, for, the driver exactly. could have the driver could have just as easily gone, move out of the way, you little shit, or something like that, you know. Maybe but... it's loud hooves or something, you know, clip clops <laughs> yeah, on true. the cobblestones yeah. and yeah. maybe if it was a dirt road, maybe it would have hurt mm -hmm. him a little that's more. That's true, yeah. Horse drawn carriages is quite as electric cars back in the day, you know. You really gotta <laughs> sound that horn. Holy shit. Um so he comes up with that bell, puts out a patent on July 30th, 1827. It's further developed and used throughout the U.S. from, from there on and actually goes on to be the streetcar alarm mm. that they used in the, you know, the cable cars. Oh, um, wow, that's interesting. From, from there, he goes on to be kind of a prolific inventor. He invents all kinds of stuff, mm. uh, all while he's also earning money as a real estate investor of sorts so here's a list of some of his inventions he invented a fire engine okay an improvement for hardcore burning stoves nice the first home knife sharpener oh wow okay cool a restaurant steam table apparatus uh flax spinner he improved oil lamps uh oh, good he the first rotary street sweeping machine he came oh, wow. up with so he's making all all of these practical great inventions and that's kind yeah. of his his niche he's that's great practical yeah he's he's furthering society which you know before commerce got into the world of inventing like th that was you know every invention moves society forwards whereas now it's like we're creating things to be bought essentially so it's arguable whether inventions are actually still furthering the cause of humanity but actually a lot of his inventions are you know, helping things become easier, cleaner, more practical. You know, it's it's all kind of little inventions that will help people. So that's great. Exactly. Well, and then, you know, he has a couple that aren't necessarily furthering. <laughs> like, okay. he created the predecessor to the Winchester repeating rifle. Ah, okay. And he helped make bullets more bullety. Oh, then, okay. He also invented some ice plows and ice-breaking wooden hull ships oh, wow. and self-closing inkwells. Oh, that's well, awesome. That's a really cool invention. Yeah, the predecessor to the modern uh, fountain pen as well. That's incredible. So this guy's pr uh, prolific in multiple different fields. So it's not just like um, home stuff. It's like urban, like kind of infrastructure. It's, you know, travel weapon stuff i'd imagine the bullets and weapon stuff that's he probably would have earned a lot of money from that and that would have funded some of his more niche projects so that's really cool you know? unfortunately he, he wasn't earning a lot of money oh. with any of this he was more or less selling away his patents and his ideas and his inventions for a little money here a little money there with no hope at royalties oh, and bad. Then sometime between 1834 and 1837, he actually developed the first modern sewing machine. Oh, wow. He he is the one that came up with the cross-stitch machine right. um, that basically is the modern sewing machine. But yeah. he didn't even seek a patent for it 
because <sighs> he was worried that it was going to create unemployment for seamstresses and his right. his daughter uh i believe it was at the time was running a corset shop and that would have put 12 seamstresses out of business and oh. and so he didn't submit the initial application until uh 1834 but he messed up the records and then didn't pursue it any further and right. it, there was a little bit of a uh a deal when how the original patent for the sewing machine hwoe okay. uh in the 1850s he patented it and then there was a little bit of a legal back and forth on whose it actually was turned out he uh hunt never mm -hmm. followed through on it so how's won the case and right. uh, it it was his although um they they had like a, a halfing of it a split right okay so they were like we've won this but you know as a gesture here's like 50 percent, i guess so that that's that's fine that works out reasonably well for him i guess it so. it wasn't much money mm. um he ended up trying to or going on to sell it to isaac singer his patent and his version, which would have been a lot of money, but it wasn't. And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, okay. In 1849, while he was experimenting with some high tension wire, he came up with uh, the safety pin, which is wow. his most famous invention. He's the man that invented the safety pin. And it was oh. an improvement on the way that they were held together before because it has that protective clasp where it holds wow. in there. And it's amazing springy and yeah. the ones we use today are pretty much the same as the stuff that he in invented in the 19th century that's incredible i mean obviously like i knew that the design itself was old and you know there are some designs that you just don't need to change because they're absolutely perfect but that's amazing and that has proliferated around the world for 200 years and at the time he was just like eh it's all right and he <laughs> sold his patent for 400 dollars, which is right around <sighs> 13,000 uh, uh, in today's currency. He yeah. sold it to W.R. Grace and company who um, went on to make millions and millions of dollars in profit <laughs> well, um, yeah. off the safety pin. So I just wish that residual rights were a thing back in the 18th century. It seems that this guy is responsible for significant improvements and yet has rarely benefited at all from them. That's really terrible. He really um, kind of died broke, oh. but his other most popular invention was the paper collar shirt that was initially used oh. for uh, stage purposes and whatnot. Yeah. But they kind of caught on. Mm. And by like the 1860s, the paper collar shirt was so fashionable that there was 40 different factories making them in the United States. Holy shit. And this time he managed to actually sell the patent that uh, he designed uh, for a decent price and negotiated royalty payments. But unfortunately, while he was negotiating with Isaac Singer and uh, trying to get this figured out, he died of pneumonia at his place of business in New York City on uh, June 8th, 1859. So before he collected on any of the royalties or sales of his inventions, um, in 1868, the paper collar shirt would have made him a, a oh, yeah. huge, huge millionaire. Absolutely. Um, he died. That's so sad. Mostly having given away or sold for next to nothing all of his patents. 
Wow, that's crazy. Like to, to have invented as many things, dozens of different things as he did, and to have not made any real significant money from it. I mean, I guess like you could say $400, like $13,000. It's like, that'll keep you going for a few years, I guess. He uh, ended up having to pay most of that to a draftsman that he used to ugh. do his patent drawings. So, oh, shit. Well, should have farmed that shit out. I guess it was before you could uh, kind of find yourself a, a, a country with really dodgy labor laws that you could just hire to do that for you. But um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I wonder if, if a little bit of it might have just been like him being a humble guy and sure. just not thinking much of what he's doing, saying, hey, you know, and I'm doing this to, to make everything better, mm -hmm. not get rich. But I don't know. I don't think you go into being an inventor to not make some money. <clears throat> yeah, I suspect this is one of those situations where, I mean, you know, maybe uh, he was this kind of like, oh, I'm just doing this for the betterment of humanity and this society. And I get that. That's very noble. But you have to put food on the table as well, right? Like, you have to yeah. create your own success. And I feel like one of the reasons I was going to score this guy slightly higher than maybe I should is because he didn't seem to learn his lesson from these patents. Like, royalties, it wouldn't have been a large leap in logic to think, well, maybe I should continue earning from this for the rest of my life, you know? Like, here's the patent. You can have it for cheap, but I want, like, 5% of the annual profits that you make from it. Like, just something like that. Like, I know you do that over, like, 40 inventions or whatever it is oh, yeah, just loaded yeah. yeah so yeah it's it's I, I just think he's probably not a very good negotiator i think the ultimate um negotiation i've ever heard and we're probably both very familiar with this and i'm sure people will be in pop culture as well is when george lucas was making star wars and um the budget was being squeezed tightly and he was like yeah yeah i'll lower my director's fee i'll lower it right down but i want all of the I want all of the rights to the merchandise. And uh, at the yeah. time, merchandise was not a big deal. Like you could make like a, maybe a 12-inch a toy, like this fucking huge thing that <laughs> maybe a few kids would buy from Kenner or something like that. But he plowed through that he kind of basically invented the four-inch tall figures that would sell by the bucket load and he made over three billion dollars from the merchandise Ooh. to star wars alone and then obviously as he you know as he got paid more and more as time went on because he set up lucasfilm and industrial light and magic and all of these different things so essentially george lucas who i i've heard people describe him somewhat unfairly as a fucking idiot who got lucky once yeah. um is, is was a very good <laughs> negotiator like he he was onto something. He knew that kids would enjoy the film because he crafted this like story that fit into the hero's arc really well. Had really well defined characters, and you know they had options for future films. And he was like, "This is going to be the dawn of something new. I'm going to establish it, and I'll go from there." Whereas this guy is creating hugely influential things, which if he'd had any kind of vision, he um. <laughs> he'd have made a lot of money if he just had the foresight to just negotiate. And he doesn't even need to do that. Just hire a lawyer. A lawyer will do that shit for you. 
that's you the know? sad thing is that he he did have a lawyer um that just really didn't do that great of a job wow okay so lawyer's fault lawyer yeah. fucked him uh, probably yeah, yeah. How, that's the name of that guy <laughs> oh there you go yeah um Tosloid here with the classic the empire did nothing wrong uh um, so <laughs> but yeah i i feel like as a result of and i i get it like some people are brilliant in one thing like they are just absolute geniuses at this thing but then like everything else they're just either terrible or not really very good at you know I, my grandfather was like a mathematical genius but he had to drive he'd, he'd go out for he'd go out to work in the morning and he'd have to drive back home like two times because he'd like forgotten his jacket and then he'd leave and he'd like, oh i forgot my lunch <laughs> as well so he'd like he had a terrible memory and um was really disorganized but he was a mathematical genius so you know his, his memory was so focused on all of this incredible information that he could use basic stuff just went out the window like you haven't shaved in like three weeks oh yeah i should do that shouldn't i so <laughs> like back in the day when everyone had to shave but i i guess this guy because he could have been and not just that with the wealth that he could have accumulated would have come better standards of living possibly better health as a result he could have lived longer he could have invented more things he could have provided more for the human race potentially yeah. um I feel like I'm going to give this guy like a 70 because seems, yeah. yeah, like he didn't really do anything wrong. He just kind of didn't do anything to further his own career. And as much as I'm a socialist and like, I, I feel like, you know, kind of gen generating stuff that helps the wider community and the wider world. And all of that is, is the ultimate goal for most people. I feel that, in the society we live in, you do also have to provide yourself with a certain comfort so that you can continue to do that. You know, you, well, you can't live in abject poverty for your entire life and then only like discover after the fact that you could have been so much greater. You know, it's 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 such a daft thing. Um, how many innocent men and women were on the Death Stars when the rebels blew it up? Well, they were contractors. We've we if you've watched um clerks you'll oh know boy. that they were contractors <laughs> who knew what political situation they were getting into they made a choice to work on that site knowing far knowing just well that the empire was at war they knew the risks going into that and they decided to take it so no do not have any sympathy for those those contractors that worked on the death star um <laughs> so yeah i'm sorry what was the guy's name again uh it's walter hunt the inventor of the safety pin wow walter hunt um yeah a solid 70 um if he'd been like an asshole as well then you know he would have scored higher but it sounds like he's just a guy that invented stuff and didn't negotiate really that well well and then so like he he allowed his his wife and his sister to influence him on not patenting the sewing machine oh. because they were seamstresses or involved in mm. seamstressing yeah and i feel like that whole it's going to take away work from this person it's like that's not necessarily the case like I, and I feel like that's kind of an argument that we've heard before for like the fossil fuel industry who are like oh well we have to protect american jobs jobs because if we go renewable then what are these oil workers going to do well just like they can 
get jobs in the new industry because they're experts in energy produ energy production. And if you slowly dismantle this thing while they're being trained and moved into the new sector, then there's no loss of earnings. They can just make a seamless transition and you've eventually done away with fossil fuels. It's like, it's a no I don't know why that seems like outside of the realm of people's thinking. <laughs> like, well, but it's not just all going to go away. And even like yeah. when your job is taken away and replaced or you're replaced by a robot or whatever, yeah. um, you find the next thing to do. You it's do. And also, living. exactly. And you probably get a severance package. So, you know, if you're being made redundant, you will get a redundancy package, which will be, I don't know, six months, possibly a year, depending on what it is. But if you accept retraining in a different field and then the, the apparatus with which the old way is dismantled and the new way comes in, you don't lose anything. So, um, well, yeah, the should... retraining to operate the robot, you know. Exactly. Straightforward. Like you, you need people in those situations. So it wouldn't have been difficult. Uh, Tosoid here with a good point. He would have invented a safe version of mustard gas, otherwise known as Febreze. Um, yeah, you may not have Febreze over in the States, but yeah, man, gets rid of odors by making everything else smell like cheap perfume. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, from an inventor who didn't really kind of do himself any favors. I think it's fair to say, to something that's really lighthearted. I mean, yesterday when we recorded our, our podcast, we featured um, the main architect of the Spanish Inquisition mm -hmm. and um, a president who was quite corrupt and a womanizer. It's a bit lighthearted for the 50th episode. We've had an inventor who really should have done better by himself. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have the greatest practical joke of the 19th century, possibly of all time, depending on who you talk to, because multiple historians have covered this. It's the most famous thing that either of these two guys have done. So, but in terms of practical jokes on the mainstream, um, wasn't expecting that in an episode. Uh, no. So the greatest practical joke of the 19th century slash possibly of all time, the Berners Street hoax. So before we get okay. into the actual practical joke itself, we have to discuss the life or lives of the people involved in the actual hoax itself, starting with the more notorious of the two and the more kind of flamboyant and stupid, really, of the two. <laughs> um, Theodore Edward Hook, who was born on the 22nd of September 1788 in Charlotte Street, Bedford Square, London. His father, James Hook, 1746 to 1827, was a composer. And his elder brother, also called James Hook, became Dean of Worcester. So that's like, like a reasonably higher position. So they're a well-to-do family, essentially. Okay. They're kind of like landed gentry. Um, not quite aristocracy, but they will have a house and probably like a cook and a butler and a cleaner. And, oh, yeah. a cook and a butler and a cleaner? Fuck yes, I, I want that too. You know, like I want staff. I, I don't want to have to think about cooking. I just want to get, hey, I feel like this today. Can you take care of that for me? Thanks, buddy. Um, but yeah, he took up residence at St. Mary's Hall, Oxford University, when he uh, was going to university, leaving after just two terms because this guy was a bit of a loose cannon. Um, his gift of improvising songs charmed the Prince Regent into a declaration that something must be done for Hook. Um, who, who was basically like, it was a bit of a layabout, but he was really entertaining and really funny and like had a charismatic charm to him. 
Um, so Hawk was hooked up with the position of Accountant General and Treasurer of Mauritius. So huh? that's a What's pretty Mauritius? good gig. Mauritius is a, a beautiful tropical island. Um, oh. Yeah, that's so a good posting right there. Goes to school, makes a good friend, and then says, yeah. screw this, I'm going to go kick it somewhere tropical. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's funny because, um, you know, if you're going to make friends, you might, you might want to cozy up to, you know, the Prince Regent. But yeah, um, so Mauritius, I've just Googled it now. If you just go on to Google and type in Mauritius, it's um, an Indian Ocean island off the east coast of Africa, I think. Is that right? It's not big, but oh, it's so gorgeous. It's not far from um, Madagascar. So oh. it's it's in that part of the world. It's so stunningly beautiful. And yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at pictures now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly you want to go to Mauritius, don't you? That's a hell of a place to be stationed. Um, and this guy's out there in the tropical paradise. And he is, uh, sorry, the accountant general and treasurer of Mauritius with a salary of £2,000 a year. Which in today's money is 142,000. Oh no, sorry, no, $194,000. So that's wow. some good money right there. And also, you know, bad. also because he's the accountant general and treasurer, he will be living in state accommodation. So they will have like a home made for him because he's this official position. So, well, and he's kind of the person running the money for the place yeah. where he is too. Exactly. So. Nice. Yeah, so he's in an official state-run thing. He'll have his own servants. He's got a really nice income from this. With no bills. Uh, with the bills paid for, essentially. <laughs> and yeah, it's just it's good living if you can get it, you know? Um, unfortunately, he was the life and soul of the island from his arrival in October 1813, but a serious deficiency was discovered in the Treasury accounts in 1817, and he was arrested and brought to England on a criminal charge, a sum of £12,000, $1.4 million in 2022 terms, had been extracted by a deputy official, and Hook was held responsible. So he kind of had a bit of a hand in it. So Yeah, he either did it or he let somebody do it yeah. to him. I don't understand. Like you're, you're in a place where everything is taken care of. You're surrounded by servants. You don't have to think about looking after the house that's taken care of. You, you can enjoy the tropical wonderfulness and sit on beaches and sip coconut juice all day long. All you have to fucking do is your job well. That's it, right? Make sure nobody steals from you. And he couldn't even do that. So he was held that's responsible. <laughs> yeah. During the scrutiny of the audit board, he lived obscurely and maintained himself by writing for magazines and newspapers. Um, in 1820, he launched the newspaper John Bull, which championed uh, the champion of high Toryism and the virulent detractor of Queen Caroline. I have no idea who that is. is um, like a fiction story? Uh, it's basically like um, like a, a an older version of The Onion, essentially. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like imagine. Oh, actually, I guess Babylon B would be more appropriate because it's like it's conservative. Okay. So, so Toryism in that day would have been a little different, but yeah, basically conservative. Um, so yeah, he's he's a bit like Babylon B-ish, I guess you could say. And it's it's witty 
and like poking fun at famous people and stuff like that. Anyway, so um, witty criticisms and pitiless invective uh, secured it a large circulation. And Hook derived, for the first year at least, an income of £2,000 from the circulation of this magazine. He's doing all right for himself. He was, however, arrested for the second time on account of his debt to the state, which he made absolutely no effort to pay back. Whoops. So, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. Like, he's still, or, <laughs> he's, yeah. He I was either involved directly with or, yeah. So um, he's then sent to prison for two years which for a man of his stature was was really bad. However, while he's in prison, he starts writing again, and he writes a bunch of letters, he writes a bunch of books, and the rest of his life is basically spent writing a series of somewhat successful books and uh, becoming famous for another thing as well. He is the owner, or at least, and also the recipient of the world's old, oldest postcard, which was sent to Hook, in 1840, bearing a penny black stamp, Hook probably created the posted uh, the card to and posted the card to himself as a practical joke um, on the postal service, since the image is a caricature of workers in the post office. So he <laughs> made this fucking thing, taking the mick out of them, posted it to himself, and was the recipient of the first ever postcard in 2002. The postcard sold at auction for £31,750. Wow. That's a shit. And back then, that would have been like $50,000 for a fucking postcard. So, kind yeah. of famous. Um, he's he's an interesting guy, is uh, old Teddy Hook here. So, he's a yeah. writer and a, and, a, and a practical joker from yeah. prison. And, like, <laughs> kind of a, a, like he's quite creative. But he doesn't seem to be able to focus on like the important stuff in life. And he was given enough rope to hang himself with, and he duly did. But you know, he lived out his life in, you know, relative comfort, writing these like a series of books and stuff like that, and doing quite well for himself. Now to the second person. Samuel Beasley, by comparison, is much calmer and much more laid back, was born in Westminster in 1786. The son of Samuel Beasley and his uh, Beasley, sorry, and his wife Anne Neefrith. Both facets of Beasley's future career were displayed when he was still a boy at school at Acton, which is like a private school in in okay. London. Age twelve, he wrote a farce and constructed the stage on which his school friends performed it. So, oh wow! Yeah, that's incredible. Really, so stagehand and a writer. Did he direct exactly, as well? Yeah. Do it. I know he's just like dancing on his own stage, <laughs> singing, playing all the instruments. Um, but at this age, he already showed signs of considerable ta uh, taste for art and uh, sorry, I've lost my cursor and a dramatic talent. According to a tribute in the Journal of Society of Architects, um, he was trained as an architect by his uncle, Charles, Charles Beasley, the architect of the much admired Church of Faversham. So uh, microwave boy. Hello. Um, we I don't think we've had you here before, but hello, welcome to the stream and welcome to the podcast for future reference. Um, so back to Samuel Beasley. Uh, I want to call him Beasy now, though. Beasy, I know because <laughs> he, right. he's Beasy. Beasy. Uh, <laughs> during his time in London, Beasy practiced as an architect and at the same time wrote plays. He'd already had uh, a work professionally produced at the Theatre Royal English Opera. Lyceum in 18 
uh, 11. The Boarding House or Five Hours at Brighton, a musical farce in two acts. So he's already doing all right for himself. You know, um, he's like um, like a Saturday Night Live writer type of thing, right? Essentially, yeah. Uh, okay. Also able to build the sets. So which is, yeah, and an architect. And an yeah. architect, like a qualified architect who can write interesting, funny stuff. Um, in 1816, he designed a new theater for the site in which one of the first productions was his operette, Is He Jealous? A reviewer wrote, it's a translation from the French, but Mr. Beasley and a, most, and, a, and a most entertaining little thing it is. We have seen nothing for a long time that has pleased us so much. So he's good, basically. Getting the good reviews, not yeah, in prison, you... writing postcards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unlike <laughs> his friend. Um, so for the same theatre, Beasley wrote the short operette, operetta, sorry, uh, Fire and Water in 1817. It was revived on numerous occasions over the next three years. The business of this piece is made up of a scheme of a petulant old man who proposes to marry a young lady and of the efforts of a rattle-brained young lover to baffle him and to carry off the prize. So it's essentially like Jeffrey Epstein. In, in an oh. operetta or something like that, I guess, maybe. Um, Beasley continued to write for the stage, producing more than 100 comedies, farces, comic operas, and operettas. So, successful guy who didn't end up in prison like his best mate. Yeah, so. he's like the 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 Adam Sandler of the... Yeah. 1790... 1800s. Where is, 1800s, where yeah. Yeah, 1800s, yeah. Only he gets good reviews. So, oh yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, basically, yeah, he's he's done really well for himself. So both of these guys kind of sort of famous for their time, but not like you know you don't hear about like Samuel Beasley or or Teddy Hawk or anything like that. This just sort of lost to history at this point. However, this practical joke they pulled is like it will live on forever, and it's fucking brilliant. So both um are sort of successful but then 1809 rolls around famed english author teddy hook made a bet with his closest friend the noted architect and writer samuel beasley that within one week he could make any house in london the most talked about place in the city huh. um yeah now just off the bat what do you think that means like or oh. what involve I, well, he he wrote satire newspaper stuff, right? That's right. Yeah. So I would imagine some sort of uh, posting in a paper. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. That you know, you you would think he would leverage his his journalistic connections, maybe, or some of his his powerful friends to get mm -hmm. involved with this. But this goes way beyond any of that. It's it's kind of crazy. So. Um, the house he ended up choosing as the home was the house of the widow Mrs. Tottenham on 54 Burner Street, London, which was the same street that Earl Stranhope and the Bishop of Carlisle and of Chester, among other wealthy and well-to-do individuals, lived on at the time. It isn't known why Hook chose Mrs. Tottenham's home, as no connection between the two is known, and Hook himself never explained his selection. It's entirely possible that it just happened to be a location where the home across the street could be rented and was also in a fairly well-to-do part of town, which would help assure that Hook's plan would work. So, okay. 
So he's rented the apartment across the street so that he can watch this unfold like some sort of fucking Bond villain. He's tinkering, but, yeah, okay. He's, he's planning <laughs> ahead with this. And also he's like, it has to be in a rich area, otherwise nobody's going to believe this scenario and it's not going to work. So there's your setup for this. Um, whatever the case, and I think also, this is my just aside, I think he's doing it to fuck with other rich people he didn't like. Like, probably. probably didn't and, like one or two of the people in that street and he's like oh fuck it i'm gonna mess with this street so and and that's probably how he chose the one that he did where he didn't have a connection so he could exactly. mess with the ones where he wanted without being like oh i wasn't going after you yeah yeah, yeah. it's nothing sense. to do with you. you just happen to be caught up in all this uh whatever the case the event began on november the 27th hook and beasley positioned themselves in the home across across the street and around 5 a.m the fun began first a chimney sweep arrived. The problem was that Mrs. Tottenham hadn't requested the sweep, uh, the services of a sweep. Within a few minutes, 12 more chimney sweeps arrived. They were um, also turned away. And it's, Fuck off, kids. Go away. Oh, Jesus, man. 12 of you. So it's, it's <laughs> the start of this is that you ordered these 20 pizzas. Yeah. Sort of thing. Like, that's the start of it. However, um, next, a cold, uh, cold delivery workers began showing up with several large carts packed with coal to be delivered to Mrs. Tottenham. They were turned away as well. So you've got like six massive wagons full of coal that show up after the chimney sweep. At this point, she must be like, something's happening here. And I don't like it. I don't (laughs) like it. First of all, who likes being woken up at 5am by a fucking chimney sweep? It's like, go away. I don't want to wake up for another two hours. Leave me alone. Um, And so... Uh, following the coal delivery, a cartload of furniture arrived. Then workers showed up with a coffin bearing the name of Mrs. Tottenham. That took a fucking oh. turn. Right there. That's dark. Ouch. Yeah. Like, holy shit. So she turns, she tries to turn them away, but there's like five cartloads of like coal in the way at this point. So it's starting to get a bit crazy. Next came several cake makers attempting to deliver very large custom-made wedding cakes. Uh, they oh must have been God. very confused by the gravestone that, and the coffin that they saw outside the yeah. front door. Um, <laughs> then <laughs> several other chefs arrived, attempting to deliver a total of around 2,500 raspberry tarts. Holy uh, crap. That's a lot. And they're, they're the size. I mean, they're not big. They're like the size of your hand, basically. But two and a half thousand of the fucking things, plus all these wedding cakes. You've got a bunch of coal. You got like a tombstones and coffins lying around. You got chimney sweeps going. What the fuck's going on? Like just walking around. Um, after that, several doctors. Uh, okay, I have to take a breath here. This is a lot. Well, this is all in one day. This is this is in the first two hours. Holy shit! <laughs> it's about to get worse because I have to take a deep breath for this. After that, several doctors, lawyers, gardeners, fishmongers dentists, grocers, priests, couch makers, carpet manufacturers, wig makers, coach makers, curiosity dealers, opticians, brewers, and shoemakers, amongst others, arrived. So everybody. Everyone in London showed up to this (laughs) fucking address. I'll just give that list again. Several doctors, lawyers, gardeners, fishmongers, so more fucking disgusting smelling food dentists grocers priests co- uh, sorry couch makers 
which is because she's already had furniture, so why not have couch makers show up? Carpet Make manufacturers. <laughs> I know, yeah. And carpet manufacturers, like, where do they think they're going? They need, like, raw materials to make that shit. She's not going to have it. Wig makers, that's hilarious. Coach makers, so, like, well, we've got to get this stuff out of here, so we might as well make coaches while we're here. Um, curiosity dealers, which I guess would have been, like, antique dealers at the time. Opticians, brewers, that's, like, yeah, this is becoming a party. Why not invite brewers? Shoemakers and others arrived. Um, they they all came offering their services, all bringing very large orders of their wares that were to be delivered to Mrs. Tottenham's address at various times throughout the day. Now, this is she's up to about midday at this point. Okay. So, like, her, the first six hours of her morning have been a bit fucking intense, and she's just, like, ready for it to be over. But it's just, just beginning. Man. <laughs> Did they, they, obviously they didn't have to like prepay for this stuff apparently not like you'd think that some of these services you'd require a deposit i mean maybe they did pay for it maybe you know this is part of the bet maybe they're like well it's worth it for the bet and they both sound reasonably well off but apparently How in london in the thousand tarts i know two thousand five hundred tarts that is a shitload of money and all of these wedding cakes which would not have been cheap all this furniture that right. just showed up Fuck me. And like sent it all COD. Yeah. I, I, uh, part of me wants to imagine that they're watching all this unfold and then they walk out of their apartment and just be like, hey, what's going on here? And just like buy a couple of tarts or just take them or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, they all came offering their services, bringing very large orders to Mrs. Tottenham's address at various times throughout the day. At one point, over one dozen pianos were delivered to her doorstep. <laughs> How do you even get one dozen pianos on a doorstep? I, I know. And we're not talking small things. This is before like player pianos were invented. These are fucking baby grands here. Ugh. These are big fucking pianos. After that, six men carrying a huge chamber organ showed up to deliver it to her address. Like the kind of thing you have in a fucking church. Yeah, the big pipes and Yeah, with the yeah. tubular bells and shit. Wow. Holy God. Um, so yeah, that it's like it's become absolute chaos. Eventually, the dignitaries arrived, including the Governor of the Bank of England, the Duke of York, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Mayor of London, the Lord Chief Chief Justice, several cabinet ministers, and the Chairman of the East India Company all showed up at this poor woman's doorstep. Uh, uh, <laughs> how do you even? How do you? How do you get all those people in one I place? I don't know. This is amazing. Like, and this is the thing is, like, people have questioned the authenticity of this. There are articles from the time, multiple articles quoting exactly the same sequence of events that happened. So it, it, it happened. All of this stuff is completely genuine. And that amazes me that not only have you got all this craziness happening, but then like, all of these famous people show up and uh, it, it just keeps getting weirder. Throughout the entire day, various parties and delivery people crowded the area outside of 54 Burner Street. By midday, the streets in the area of London became so crowded that the roads were jammed with for several blocks in every direction with Jeez. delivery people and onlookers. So obviously it's drawn a crowd at this point and probably thieves as well, I'd imagine. So it's kind of gone a bit crazy. Um, all the while, Hook and Beasley sat and watched the chaos from across the street. Hook's part in the madness, which did indeed uh, become the talk of London, was not known until much later when he eventually confessed while he was in prison. 
Um, he did it all by sending around 4,000 letters out to various entities in London, ordering various items for the simple to, from the simple to the outlandish. He also wrote to several notable individuals, include, like the Lord Mayor of London, uh, creating tales sufficient to get those people to come and call on Mrs. Tottenham on that day. Basically, just party at this lady's house. You know, just like that sort of I thing. would imagine oh. it was like some sort of like drawn out make a wish letter oh, yeah. and stuff for some of them. Well, actually, one of them was, and that's a, that's a very good guess. Um, what was written in most of the letters to convince these people to come isn't known. One of the few that is known is the letter to the mayor of London. Once he realized that everyone there was a victim of an elaborate practical joke, he went to the police station. At the police station, the mayor stated that he had received a letter, supposedly from Mrs. Tottenham, explaining that she was at death's door, and she requested that the mayor call, call upon her home to bear witness to a deposition she would give under oath. So he was oh. like, ooh, some juicy shit's about to be, you know, like, she's going right. to confess something serious here. I have to attend this address. And he shows up in this fucking fish and like chimney sweeps and coal everywhere and gotcha. shit. pianos <laughs> like yeah oh my god i thought i was coming here for the the scoop of a lifetime that could help make my career but no it's just a new and elaborate joke um after the hoax was revealed the mayor sent officers out to uh, attempt to instill some order in the chaos on the streets including attempting to calm the crowds who were reportedly on the brink of rioting when the streets jammed with angry travelers and hundreds of merchants who were infuriated that Mrs. Tottenham would not pay for the often massive orders of their wares they had come to deliver. Lady, you oh fucking cough up. I don't care if it's a hoax. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, think of the money some of those poor small business owners I lost. I know. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think one of the saving graces, a lot of them had their names included um in the actual articles themselves so it would have been like so and so smiths and then you'd have an interview with them i delivered the finest furniture to this address and now it's not here. It's like it's it's kind of free publicity to a certain extent but that many people showed up that you couldn't have gotten everyone involved. well and there's 10 10 of this and five of that and oh, yeah. i mean now you gotta compete with the other 10 chimney sweeps on who gets the publicity <laughs> Yeah, I, I I was the cheapest interview me. Um, some of these products were also completely destroyed by the crowds in the attempted delivery. Along with the damaged goods, several fights broke out throughout the day among the pressing masses and the delivery drivers who were angry that they were blocking each other. Right? Get out of the way! Starts to deliver. Move your fucking coal van. Um, once the crowds dissipated late in the evening, Hook and Beasley emerged from the house across the street and went home. For successfully making the home the talk of London within a week of the bet, Hook reportedly received a guinea from Beasley. How much is a guinea, you might ask? It's the equivalent of one pound in 2022 money. One dollar. It's Brewster's Millions. Oh my or, God! No, it is. Millions. No, it's it's um. Oh, uh, what's that film with? Uh, um, is it Trading Places? Trading Places. That's yeah. it. Yeah, where they yeah, bet a yeah, dollar yeah. that they can't like ruin his life, and then it's returned on them. So that's the story of um, Messrs. Beasley and Hook, the Burner Street hoax, the greatest nat uh, the greatest practical joke of the 19th century. I have to ask Derek, what what do you think of this? Well. 
it's hilarious, but then it's yeah. also like kind of cruel, sad, and yeah, because I mean that mm. poor person that baked those twenty five hundred tarts. Yeah, and the shit. poor the poor chimney sweep number five who <laughs> never got an interview. <laughs> How many chimneys do you have, lady? There's already four of us here. What's going on? <laughs> I mean, God, that's it's he did exactly what he said he was going to oh, do. Yeah. So props for that. Yeah, um, obviously he's he's a super super great writer. Yeah, you've got to be convincing as hell. So. More props for that. But yeah, all of that for a dollar probably ruined some of those businesses. I would imagine um, so. Yeah. Kind of cruel. Yeah. And that poor old lady. I mean, yeah. I assume she's old. Poor Miss. Oh, yeah. Well, she, well, she's a widow, but you know, this is Victorian England. She could have been a widow at like 25 30. or something, yeah. you know. So, <laughs> she could have been married at like 16 and he might have been dead three years later from typhoid or something. So you just yeah. don't know. But, you know, the fact that she's a widow kind of and living in a good house kind of yeah hints that that she's probably reasonably old so. i was gonna say that you know i that reminds me of a, a practical joke that happened here with a radio dj um oh yeah called up a widow of a baseball pitcher the st louis cardinals pitcher that had passed away like a year ago we were Ooh. playing the diamondbacks in in like the playoffs or something he mm. called and asked her out on a date on the air and uh, yeah he lost his job though i'm not surprised but, yeah messing with widows is not cool that's not good no i think it's funny we you know we we've both worked in the radio industry and there are some kind of classic practical jokes that seem to kind of go round the radio industry i do remember that a few years ago and this is there was a family who were like desperate attention seekers on reality shows and they employed a practical joke that they said no, no no it definitely happened we shouldn't have gone to jail for this they basically had they they'd created a weather balloon that created oh, a balloon boy a balloon boy and <laughs> balloon boy was in the balloon and then the balloon went up and then obviously the whole fucking state turned out to try and get the balloon down safely and then oh it turns out he was in the attic all along oh is thing that and a load of people were like I don't think it was like I don't think it was planned. I don't think it was a publicity stunt. I think they've been hard done by justice. I can tell you for an absolute one hundred percent fact that they knew exactly what they were doing because that same practical joke had happened in the radio industry in the UK at least five times, and it was always the same setup. It was I'm here at the side of the road with local balloon expert, blah blah. blah and he's put his kitten in the carriage and oh doesn't the kitten look good oh my god the kitten's gone in the sky and you would then because it's radio and obviously people are like oh my god we need to look up at the sky to find this fucking balloon uh, you've got like <laughs> you get t like drivers calling in saying i think i can see a balloon i'm looking up at the sky and there's something that looks like a balloon in the sky and it's basically like it's a way to draw out like an hour's worth of programming but also maybe like get some people calling in, get like the money that you get for the phone calls and shit like that. Maybe get their name so they can enter a competition or a giveaway right. or something. I had seen that done at one point. It was done by um, the same network, just in different locations. So you'd have like their Nottingham station do it. And then the same station, a different station in Newcastle would do the same thing on the same day. So oh. I knew the balloon boy shit was fake. 
straight away. I was like, they have done this. And obviously because it's America and also they've been stupid enough to do it on television. Like the balloon had fucked up on television. They're like, they'd gotten state authorities involved. And when you involve the police and like officials and stuff like that, they do not like to be made to look stupid. So when it turns out it's a hoax, you're going to prison. Yeah, basically. like the mayor of uh, London there, who was like, wait yeah. a second, I'm going to the cops. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting my police involved. We need more people in this street. Uh, <laughs> what, but boss, we're on, a, we're on you know, overtime now. I will pay you in tarts. Apparently there's enough there, so just get in the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this one's a difficult, difficult one, I think, to score. Yeah, I would agree. It's a great prank, oh, but yeah. it's also cruel. It is. It is definitely cruel. I I wonder how much actual thought went into like, oh, what happens if like some stuff gets damaged or fights break out, or if this old woman has a heart attack and dies on the spot because of the stress. Like, yeah, I don't imagine he thought anything about that. No, it was just like, fuck it, I'm gonna have some fun, so, right? For a dollar. Yeah, for a dollar. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. So. Um. Gosh. It's a great prank, though, and I mean, it's it the the original. Here's tw you ordered twenty pizzas, <laughs> and so I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know if I should score them high or low for the greatness of the prank. Yeah, I think. Um, and and again, we've done this before in the past where we've you know history's greatest idiots. The emphasis on certain parts of that name is different from person to person. So when we say idiot, we're thinking like. You know, people who have been made huge mistakes and not learned from them or you know done terrible stupid horrible awful things and then you've got like the greatest side of it which is like odorous among us and you know like maybe um what's his name uh rick james bitch oh, so yeah, you know like the kind of the greatness aspect of it where like okay yeah they probably did some awful awful terrible things but at the same time the greatness aspect of it can't be ignored so you know it's it's kind of slightly idiotic with the cruelness of this but also great because kind of audacious really yeah and you know let's see i think because it's probably the greatest prank of all time <laughs> and not just the 19th century yeah uh, because it got way too out of hand to just not be totally great i'm, I'm gonna go with a, a an 80 for this one. Oh, nice yeah that's that's a good that's a good joke and also we should point out because there's essentially two people involved in this prank but i get the sense that um samuel beasley or beasy here i feel like he was a bit of a more of a like i think hook liked him because obviously they were friends and he was right. like i'm gonna entertain my friend so i feel like the majority of that score needs to go to teddy hook because oh, he yeah. seems like the guy that's like kind of, uh, well, I mean, obviously it was his bet, but like he went all out with this bet to make sure it happened. Whereas Dude, Samuel Beasley, letters. yeah, you know, 4,000 letters in a week. Yeah. I can't, yeah. How many of that would be a day? That's kind of crazy. And he, he had to have been doing it by hand, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's no printing press involved in this. He's not typing it. So. Right. Holy shit. So he's handwriting all of these letters. I mean, some of them would have been ledgers, right? Some of them would have been 2,500. Maybe he'd have to justify it by saying wedding or something like that or like funeral or, you know, something that would um, kind of make them believe that this is a genuine order. I mean, five pianos. I don't know how you swing that one, but, you know, something would have been done. But I believe that he would have put a lot of effort into the dignitaries. I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury 
I mean, we talk about like the mayor of London. It, it's in London, like it's no massive deal. But the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's come up from like the furthest reaches of Kent. Like he's traveled three hundred miles for this shit to wow, get to and London. Seeing that to see had that. to take some forethought too. Yeah, that's like he's going to need a couple of days to get here because he's getting in a horse-drawn carriage and they can only do like ten miles an hour. So hopefully, it's the... got a bell. Yeah, hopefully, it's got a bell that's been invented and then <laughs> sold off for a pittance. But yeah, I, I um, so much planning went into this, and to have done it inside a week is kind of amazing. I mean, I guess maybe the Archbishop of Canterbury might have been in London, maybe for an engagement or something. But yeah, like to get the head of uh, the East End East India Company, who was almost as powerful as the Prime Minister and the King at this point in time, like the East India Trade Company were incredibly powerful. To get him to show up, that's like a feat. It Holy had to shit. be. It had to be his inside knowledge of uh, yeah. working in government and being yeah. friends with the Prince Regent and whatnot. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's more to this story. I feel like he probably had help as well. Like I bet he employed f- kind of friends who had connections or leaned on someone. I suspect like it can't just be this one guy writing four thousand letters in a week. Like that just doesn't quite add up for me. I feel like he has um maybe journalistic a pro- friends. A production something. team like uh Punk. Yeah, a full fucking production team to help him with this shit because all of this for a guinea, like I he's just one of those free spirit guys who's just doing something for the sake of doing it. So I like that aspect of it. But yeah, I definitely think that even though he's confessed to it, I think he had a lot of help. And Netflix, if you're out there, I mean, this is gold for a 90-minute, like, I think I'm going to start writing this movie. This is a great movie to watch, because not only do you have the constant narrative of all of these fucking people showing up and this chaos happening, you've also got the kind of the intrigue of this guy's life, where he's, like, sent to a, a paradise and fucks it up and ends up in prison, but then becomes a successful writer, and you know, there's, like, there's a whole B story right there, so, yeah. you know... Um, I, I feel like this is a 90 minute historic comedy that would be quite nicely done. Um, you know, you could take the same tone as those Enola Holmes films that have done quite well. You know, they're quite lighthearted. So, yeah. you know, I just Netflix do it and chuck us a bunch of money, please. Um, yeah, yeah for our do 50th that. episode. Yeah, this, this, <laughs> we need some Netflix money. Um, so that's that's our show. This is much shorter than we would normally do. It's still been an hour, but you know, like. This is what we originally shot for. Yeah, we were already, always going for an hour. And then like we ended up just having too much fun talking about stuff. So Yeah. It's a yeah. good time hanging out with you. you uh, th- thank you, man. It's a good time hanging out with you as well. I don't go out much, so I talk to you more than just about anyone other than my wife. So so that's I mean, that's an indictment of how sad my social life is. But yeah. Um <laughs> I don't go out either. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're both we're both living in wastelands. Um so yeah. <laughs> Um, it's been it's been really fun doing this episode. I've really enjoyed researching this one. This is one of the easiest researches I've ever done. Um, I should also give a shout out to Simon Whistler, who does a podcast about historical events, who is kind of responsible for bringing this to my attention. And also I, I kind of copied and pasted a lot of the article from his website. So thank you, Simon. Um, not that you know who I am, but he has like about 15 different YouTube channels, all of them like history comedy business blah blah this and um yeah he's really really entertaining i'd highly recommend you listen to or watch his stuff on youtube and yeah derek how did you find researching um uh what's your boy's name 
Walter Hunt. Walter Hunt. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was it was interesting. That yeah. I I didn't know. I've never on, honestly heard of him. I right, just knew yeah. that the guy that invented the safety pin, safety pin, nobody really knew. Mm. And so to find out that he invented so much stuff yeah. and never really made it money wise. Mm. Um, God, yeah, it was pretty interesting. I yeah. didn't realize that you could do that without accidentally getting rich. I know. Yeah. If only he had like one tenth of Thomas Edison's business acumen, who was like, I will steal your invention and make so much money off it and claim it as my own. Oh, but yeah. You know, that guy barely invented anything. He takes credit for everything. But this guy's See, kind of the opposite of Edison. If you mush them together, you got a solid inventor that has a career. Yeah, and like a conscience, apparently. Yeah. So, which Thomas Edison definitely didn't have. Um, so, yeah, wow. Uh, but this is, yeah, this has been really fun. And obviously, this is our 50th episode. Uh, the episode following this will be a kind of a compilation of the highest scoring or some of the highest scoring people we've ever had on this podcast. So I'll be pulling about three of those together and making one episode out of it. And that'll be going out around about uh, the new year in uh, 2023. But um, thank you all for uh, listening and 50 episodes have gone by so quickly and, you know, long may uh, another 50 come around and we look forward to doing more content and hopefully making a career of this because we really enjoy it and we love interacting with you all. And thank you all so much. Derek, um, would you like to say goodbye, please? Goodbye, please. Ha-ha, <laughs> I did it, <laughs> finally. You did. I, I, why do I phrase it like that? That's such an, a, I don't know. A British way of saying it. Um, yeah. We will see you all again in episode uh, 50 plus 50.1 i guess it's like a bonus episode but episode 51 will include new stuff oh new music and animation if you watch the live streams please do watch the oh i should do the social stuff shouldn't i, I should oh, actually yeah. do that yeah i forgot about that so give us go on youtube and follow history's greatest idiots we are also on twitch but that's at why all the anger because I have my own Twitch thing. I really need to sort that out. You can also follow us on social media on uh, at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram and Greatest Idiots on Twitter. And also, if you go to patreon.com slash History's Greatest Idiots, you can sling us some cash and get some stuff for yourself with our merch stuff on it and also access to a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff and notes and private, like talks with us maybe yeah. i don't remember what the i'll talk to were. somebody yeah we'll talk to you for like a bit of money but yeah um thank you guys so much and we will see you again in the next bonus episode okay take care now bye